It's the Airhead 247 Podcast. The Airhead 247 Podcast, powered by Wedgetail Ignition Systems, state of the art ignition for your 247 Airhead. Proudly made in Australia by motorcyclists who love their BMWs. By the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America, who invite you to ride inspired. And Boxer2Valve.com, the premium supplier for all your airhead replacement parts. Now, let's get this thing fired up. Greetings again, everybody. Part two of our conversation with George Thomas at Air Support BMW, just ahead. Among our topics this week, navigating social media as a mechanic. That doesn't sound too fun. George's thoughts on twin shocks versus monolever models. And yes, we'll even chat a little bit about the transmission circlip, that and some other fun stuff ahead. A reminder, you can find George online by searching Air Support BMW. You'll find both his webpage and Instagram under those search terms. Also, glad to welcome back William Plam from Boxer 2 Valve for another Tech Talk segment. Our topic this week, BMW Special Tools. A reminder, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please consider taking a moment to leave us a rating and review. Your feedback on that platform is valuable in keeping our program afloat. Speaking of feedback, want to contact us directly? airheads247 at hotmail.com. Drop us a line anytime with whatever is on your mind. Also, we're still looking for survivor bike stories, original paint, unrestored 247s. We've got a lot of wonderful ones we'll be getting to in the coming months, but as always, we're looking for more. Also, we'll be adding some interviews with survivor bike owners here in the coming weeks. And a reminder, the Survivor Series is now a bi-monthly feature in the BMW MOA Owner's News, so check it out there. All right, off we go to Kitchener, Ontario, for more of our conversation with George Thomas and Air Support BMW. Another thing I want to get your take on, George, is uh, if you're familiar with, have you watched, have you dug into it, do you have thoughts on the Bring a Trailer phenomenon uh, with motorcycle sales, particularly airheads. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's hard to avoid uh, at least knowing about it and some of the insane prices that are that are happening there. Um, I haven't personally done it yet. Uh, in fact, um, I, a couple of customers were asking if I could do it for, as I said before, I do consignments, and so they were asking if I could do it that way to maybe, you know, maximize the return. Uh, so I haven't done it, but, but one of the guys I mentioned works for me part-time. He did it as an experiment for, for both of our benefit with one of his personal bikes and went through the whole process. So I've now learned that it's quite a process, um, probably worthwhile most of the time, depending on the bike. Um, so that, that's, that's what I have to say about the process. The phenomenon of it is, is quite insane, uh, how it's just, it's, it's just turned the bike world into a frenzy uh, in terms of prices. That's good and bad. It's it's good when I'm selling a bike. It's bad when I want to buy a bike. Uh, it's bad for my customers. Um, but at the same time, it's also opening up 
the availability of bikes to people who maybe wouldn't have had that availability. So it's it's kind of good in that sense. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a mixed bag. Yeah, I definitely think for a while it, it and still probably has been a seller's market. Uh, but recently, one thing I've noticed, and as we're speaking now, it's uh, the early part of 2023. Um, most of the bikes that go on there now are, are no reserve. And I've heard anecdotally a few people say in so many words that bring a trailer steers sellers towards a no reserve auction. Uh, not that you can't put a reserve on it, but apparently if you want to get your bike on there and get it on there quickly, um, maybe they're sort of really, quote unquote, recommending uh, that a bike goes on at no reserve. And when that happens, uh, it can be not a good thing for a seller. Uh, I mean, I've seen, yeah, sure. yeah, we've seen some bikes that have gone cheap. Uh, recent, I've seen one guy that just, you know, the auction was about to end on a, he had a Paris Dakar, uh, mid nineties, Paralever Paris Dakar. He just yanked it off there. Just said to hell with it, you know, and dealt with yeah. the consequences, but he wasn't going to, you know, he wasn't going to let it go for, you know, $8,000 or whatever the bid was. So, uh, yeah, it's, yeah so I, I, I've, heard, I've heard that anecdotally too, Darren. Some of my colleagues in um, in other motorcycle um, businesses, that not not BMW, but in, in more Italian stuff, but yeah. with high value stuff, they want to have a reserve on it, and the hoops that they had to jump through with bring a trailer to uh, to get that done, and, and then there's a I think there's a fee for that reserve or something. I don't know. If there was a lot of interesting. About that, but, so I, I haven't done it. Um, I feel like I, I would do it for the right bike. Like I have a client right now. He's been a customer for a long, long time, probably since I started the business. He's become a friend. He's got a very early, no, it's not very early, sorry. It's a 85 R80 GSPD, the one everybody wants, right? Yep. The monolever with the big tank. It's fairly pristine. His thought is that we should put that on bring a trailer because um, it'll maximize his return. He's probably right for that bike. Now, let me, let me ask you, let me jump in here. Is it an actual factory uh, issue PD, or did, was it purchased as a standard uh, GS and then the kit added later? It is a, it's a factory GS PD. Okay, all right, all right. And, and, and so then with, you know, this is, this is what we're building to, you know, yeah. you, would, you would curate the bring a trailer sale to make sure you had the paperwork behind that and the pedigree and why it's so special. And then, and then you you know you build up that image and and you maximize your return. Not that this is a, what this should be about, but but you know when you're a seller, that yeah, sometimes what it's about. That um, is, I, would I would I do that for would I do that for a slash seven? No, no, no. I was just going to say that that is the right form for that bike. Uh, you have to have thick skin when you go on there, and you have to be prepared for the peanut gallery uh, with lots of shells coming flying at you. Uh, especially if you're going to, especially if you're going to bring a, a, a factory issued Paris Dakar uh, GS. I mean, there are a lot of folks are going to be just nitpicking that thing to death. So, well, maybe we'll see it on there. Yeah, yeah, probably this summer. We're, okay. we're still negotiating back and forth. Well, you know, part of the problem is he waffles on whether he wants to sell it because it is also a member of his family, and like most most customers, they don't want to actually sell their bikes, but. Um, he might, and, and it'll be on in the summer probably. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, that'd be hard to part with. I have an 81 yeah. uh, GS that I've fitted with all the, you know, accoutrement, uh, most of it anyway, 
uh, for that bike, sans the white rear fender. Uh, but then I've also got, you know, the came the bike I have was originally uh, dark blue, Dunkel Blau. Uh, so I've got that fender set, and then I've got the other white tank and stuff for it. So I've got, what I'm saying, George, is I got some outfits uh, for that right. bike. Yeah, and it's a lot of fun. So I, I play uh, dress up three times a year on that, just kind of swapping them out. But <laughs> I, I don't, as much, as long as I've had that and as much as I put into it, uh, I, I, I couldn't see selling it, you know. And it's one of those kind of scenarios where to get the value I would want out of it, if I was forced to sell it, it would have to go on bring a trailer probably if I was going to try to maximize the value. And then I just couldn't you know put what? You- Go ahead. I was just gonna say, you know what? You, you would still kick yourself for selling. You, oh, totally. You, you got twenty five grand in in a couple of years ago. Damn it! I wish I never would have sold that. Yeah, yeah. Plus, I would have had to yeah. deal with all the uh, idiotic comments on there as well. So, but whenever I sell a personal bike, I look at it like that. Uh, whether it's on Bring a Trailer or anywhere else, doesn't matter. I say to myself, Am I ever, am I going to be able to get this bike again? Yeah. Good point. Not even for this money, right? Like, yeah. Good so point. Slash five that I've got. I thought about selling the slash five, and I'm like. No, when when am I ever going to find number seven thirty five off the line slash five again? Like I'm just not. Yeah, with only thirty thousand miles on it. Yeah, good point. Yeah, if I sold that GS, I would never probably buy another one again. Uh, I'm just financially, I'm just not. First, right? Yeah, I'm just. I'm just. Yeah, I'm not in the position to do that. Uh, All right. So moving on here, um, I want to talk about parts availability, reproduction parts. You're, since you're dealing with a, a wide variety of bikes, slash two all the way up to the last of the uh, airhead run, um, what parts are you seeing that you'd like to see improved or created as far as reproduction parts go? So, for example, one thing people are always hunting down are slash six, slash seven uh, switchgear handlebar controls. Um, oh, yeah, please. Yeah, uh, and then other parts uh, that, you know, maybe could have been improved. Uh, you know, I don't know. I don't think, I don't know that I am involved in that enough to think, okay, I've only got one option for this part that's a reproduction. I, I don't care for it that much. But just what's your general take on parts availability and what, and what would you like to see introduced into the market? Yeah, great question. Um, so in general, I feel like parts availability is, pretty good, if not quite good. It used to be better. I remember, you know, you mentioned motor bins earlier. I remember 10 years ago, you could buy a whole crankshaft and ring and pinions and all this stuff was, was available. It's, that's not anymore. Um, but that's kind of an impractical wish, you know, with crank. And I think that was a luxury that didn't last very long. But I do think that you nailed it with the, the mid-70s electrical stuff. It's just impossible to find. And they all need it. Like, they all freaking need it. So that would be nice to see someone. I, I think Euromotor Electrics has somebody that's building good wiring harnesses and good switch gear. But I think the problem is intermittency of availability. Yeah. Um, just like Steven Rock does great work with um, their um, spline repair thing with jiggers and um, camshafts and stuff like that. But they seem to make them once a year. And then they're gone. All the big guys buy them. Yep. I buy as many as I can. And then they're gone, right? So I think I'd like to see that kind of that cycle flatten out a little bit to be just always available because guess what? Like two years ago, I feel like I did 
40 freaking final drives last that summer because they just <laughs> guess what they're all 50 years old and they yeah. all wore out at the same time <laughs> um and and now my my one right now is camshafts i cannot find a camshaft huh. anywhere and then you mentioned it earlier when i can find one the price has doubled since covid for whatever reason uh, that's just the way it's been so it, it's been th- those things are tough yeah um, and again camshafts are wearing out people think airheads are are like indestructible but they're not they're a machine so these things are wearing out interesting but i think the biggest thing is the electrical stuff yeah uh, those mid-70s bikes they're just it's all junk and um and they're all worn out yeah it's gonna i some supplier uh, whether it's uh, Seaman Rock or whoever, I think is going to finally s- step up with those switches. Uh, I mean, I had a need for one uh, for my 77S, and luckily, you know, I called, you know, called in a few friends and favors and found one. Uh, it didn't take me that long, um, but I'm, I'm, I've almost, I'm not doing this. But you'd wonder. I'm sure there are guys out there that that are. When they come up on eBay or you see them reason, reasonably priced, I'm sure there are people that are just buying them and sitting on them and reselling them. Why, I mean, why not? You can make a hundred dollars on one. Oh, for sure. I'm you know, doing that. and if you if you heard me mention that and you haven't done it, please don't start doing it. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, we, it, is, it is a world that we live in. That Supply and demand. You know, want to make money, right? And it's fine demand. So, and that's okay. That's always going to exist. I yeah. think what we need is, is some of those suppliers, like you mentioned, Stephen Rock, who have the ability to do it. You know, go ahead and do a run of of, uh, of uh, the rocker type switches. I mean, cool type switches. They'll they'll sell. They absolutely are. They're going to sell. So make a thousand of them for so we can all keep these bikes on the road. Yeah, I mean, look, I am not an engineer, uh, but I, I've I've heard we have three D printing. Apparently, that's a thing, <laughs> right? Yeah. And all those switch gears are plastic. You know, and they're and they're wires. I mean, can it be that hard? I don't know. I mean. Who knows? Anyway, okay. Well, we'll hopefully somebody will hear this and and they'll they'll take it on. Uh, I want to ask you, George. I, I put this in the questions. Did you ever know this guy called Niels near Dundalk, Ontario? I, I it sure sounds familiar, and I think I went to a tech day there. Um, but that's all I can really remember. And I, I even looked back through some emails from from the uh, air marshal up here. But I, no, I I don't have any distinct recollection okay let me tell a quick story so the you may remember the bmw national rally was in toronto when was this 2003 or four or something right um and i rode up with two guys from memphis and we got to dundalk ontario which do you know where that is oh absolutely okay So we were literally at the four-way stop sign crossroads there with the gas station uh, on the sort of on our right, uh, the north uh, east corner, or whatever I don't know. Anyway, it was a kind of desolate four way stop back then. It was anyway, and yeah, my sure. buddies uh, slash two quit running, and we had the benefit of the MOA anonymous book. We found a number nearby, call it. We talk with this guy, a real thick German accent on the phone. He says, hey, I come pick you up. We take you to my friend's shop. We fix the bike. Okay, perfect. So this guy shows up. He was an older gentleman. 
Again, this was about 20-some years ago. And it, it was obvious, George, he was in the woodworking field at some point because I think he had a total of three fingers. And he, oh, wow. Yeah. But he, he, comes, he comes up in his truck. He's got a trailer in the back uh, so he can—he uh, had a van. Trailer in the back so he can haul the bike to this guy's shop. Pulls up. Uh, we get it loaded up. He says, we're going to my friend Neil's house, which was, uh, I don't know, 30 minutes away, 40 minutes away. I can't remember exactly. It was in the area. Anyway, we get there. Turns out this guy was from Austria. He was a retired BMW mechanic uh, in the 40s and 50s, relocated to Canada. He had a workshop with the BMW tool pegboard, the blue pegboard with all the tools and the outlines on there. And we just thought, you have got to be kidding me. You know, <laughs> we broke down in the middle of nowhere and we end up at this shop, which it was like an oasis. The guy's wife comes out. She says, uh, I made you some sandwiches. Here's a case of beer. Uh, just give us $10 uh, for the beer and come up to the house. We'll have coffee and uh, croissants in the morning. And I'm just thinking, we need to break down more often. Uh, yeah, right. Yeah, and this guy, Niels, what a, what a neat guy. You know, he fit, it turned out it was just a condenser. Uh, but he, the next morning, lit, we I was on a Slash 5, uh, 750. I fired it up, and he's like, oh, no, 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 bring it in, bring it in. You know, he had to, had to adjust the valves and sink the carburetors, you know, like I'm going to tell him no, you know. Right. Uh, and just what a great experience. So if there's anybody out there that remembers uh, this fella, I want to say his name was Niels, uh, who was from, I think, Austria and had relocated. I'd love to hear from him because uh, that was just one amazing night. And another, if anybody who's traveled enough knows that sometimes when you break down, uh, don't worry, because oftentimes that's going to be the most fun and memorable part of the trip, or at least it can be. I, I 100% agree with that. I think I wrote a, a, a blog post years ago about um, the, the art of getting lost. And yeah. I refused to have a GPS because I, I would love to just not know where I was going, and that was sometimes half the fun. Hell yeah. I'm with you on that, George. I don't own a cell phone. And when I go out on a trip, uh, I use uh, a gazetteer, which I don't know if you know what that is, but it's essentially here in the States, uh, it's a state-by-state -state road atlas, but it's an atlas fully exploded. So one page in a road atlas covers like five square miles. So it's really detailed. Uh, but that's, uh, that's what I still use. I just pull out the pages, fold them up to wherever I'm going, and that's, that's how I find my way. Also, maybe my wife has a cell phone on the back and tells me where to turn, but <laughs> which is really helpful. Uh, all right. As we're winding things up here, I want to remind uh, folks, uh, Air Support BMW, we're visiting with George Thomas. Uh, great website. Uh, also, you're on Instagram. And uh, are you on Facebook or one of the other ones as well? No, Instagram only, and uh, yeah, Facebook and I don't get along. Fair uh, enough. I find it's a really, it's a very hateful platform, and I just choose not to use it. I agree. It's uh, it is hateful. However, there are a lot of good bikes to be found on there, George. Oh, I know, I know. The marketplace is amazing, and I I know Andy and I talk with us all the time. He's like yeah. George. 
Facebook's where it's at for, the, for getting customers. Like he says, he gets lots of customers. Yeah. I'm sure he does. Yeah. Um, hey, here's here's the here's whole my, demographic there, right? It is. Here's my one word of advice to anybody who has a problem with the internet: lower your expectations, and you'll you'll be fine. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> and also for me, Darren, it comes down to time. Yeah. Uh, you've already heard how busy I am. Yeah. Um, and so Instagram is pretty manageable for me. It is. Um, so if Facebook, Facebook requires a bit more effort because of all the stupid commentaries. <laughs> it, is, um, it is ridiculous. I mean, it's, uh, yeah, it, 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 I, I don't understand, uh, how it, it tracks the, the kind of comments it does at times, but that, that's another yeah, story. So here's, here, here's my message to the people listening is, um, yes. if you're on Facebook, don't be afraid of Instagram. It's not as hard as you think. It's, <laughs> there's no comments. It's, there can be comments, but you don't have to do that. Uh, you know, so come join us over there. There you go. Yeah. There you go. Spare tubes. Yep, got them. Spare starter relay and clutch cable. Check a Rooney. These are just some of the things on your checklist you may have when preparing for a road trip on your 247. Two things you may not have considered, the BMW MOA Anonymous book and the MOA's Roadside Assistance Plan. No matter how well you and your bike are prepared, yep, the unexpected can happen. The BMW MOA Anonymous book, it's one of the most confidence-inspiring items I pack when traveling. It's full of contact information for MOA members across the U.S. and internationally, who can offer assistance in the event of a breakdown or provide a tip on where to grab a good sandwich or catch a live band. I've used the anonymous book on a few occasions over the years. The result, always the same. Friendly assistance with a repair and a great story to tell down the road. Conversely, I've hosted and assisted fellow riders over the years, and the same applies. Always a fun story and the feeling of satisfaction when helping someone in need. Now, Roadside assistance plans. These start at $20 a year for the basic and top out at just over $60 a year for the platinum roadside and tire hazard protection plan. That includes 100 miles of free towing up to four times a year and two tire replacements each year up to 250 bucks for each tire. The platinum package covers up to three bikes regardless of the brand or year. As with any offer, there are details and conditions here, so be sure to check out more on this on the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America website under the Resources tab. So next time you've got a long road trip planned, yes, pack your spares and make sure your bike is tuned and ready to go. And for that extra peace of mind, have your MOA Anonymous book and roadside assistance plan ready as well. Now back to our chat with George at Air Support BMW. Uh, all right, before we get to the final sort of four questions I ask everybody, <clears throat> you have a, a thing on your website, uh, a buyer's guide, ostensibly, I'm going to call it. So you want to buy a classic uh, BMW. And you've got uh, some good bits of advice. Uh, a couple things I, I really thought uh, you hit the head on nail on the head paint to talk about paint condition looking at the switch gear maintenance history and stuff like that and so there's some good stuff to go through again we can direct some folks 
to air support BMW and check it out there. A couple of things I do want to ask you about. Uh, you you make you you make some opinionated statements. I don't know if you if yeah, if, if these. I'm having a bad day, Darren. All right. Okay. I don't know if these are sort of in jest. You know, take with a grain of salt. You're being kind of sarcastic or whatever. Uh, but a couple of them I do want to uh, just check your temperature on and, and see if it's maybe wavered a little bit since you typed these. Uh, slash six and slash seven, I won't read the whole thing, but essentially I'm going to paraphrase and cherry pick this out. Slash six and slash seven, if you want to destroy a BMW and make a cafe racer, please use one of these. Yeah, yeah. I still stand by that because uh, <laughs> okay. often I find people bring me really otherwise nice bikes like a slash five or a um you know even an rs can you imagine and then ripping it all ripping it all apart and making it a cafe or so when there's plenty of average bmws like a slash six or seven that would happily become a cafe racer okay so and, and, nobody, and nobody would care well and i'm gonna say would you care to amend that and maybe just say an r an r75 an r90 a plain r100 slash seven because I've got a 90S, I've got a R100S, I've got a 78RS. That's yeah. right That's right in the slash six, slash seven wheelhouse. Thank you for clarifying. Yes. So when I say that, I mean, I, I again, back to identity, I consider those particularly identifiable, identified bikes. That's an R100S, that's an R90S, that's an RS. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the plain Jane naked, you know, R60 slash six or R75 slash six or seven even, you know, my, my point behind that is they're usually cheaper. Uh, they're not that special unless they're one of those identifiable, you know, breeds that we're talking about. Um, and, and in general, people aren't going to mind if you, if you make a lot of modifications to it that are irreversible. Yeah. All right. Fair enough. Uh, okay, dual shock versus monolever. Uh, monolever. So I, I'm going to agree with a lot of sort of the general overview of a monolever bike. Uh, I'm, again, I'm going to sort of paraphrase you here. 85 on for the airhead. Things were more refined, more standardized, less problematic, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, I mean, we could go on. There's a list of things uh, of problems that I don't want to say disappeared, but were finally addressed uh, uh, on the 85 on bikes. Now, conversely, I don't, for me, uh, again, this is just kind of a count, counterpoint counterpoint here. Uh, the 85 on bikes, I never got along with the looks and styling of those as much as I did with maybe the older twin shocks. Uh, so for somebody like me and guys who are fans uh, of the full, I'm not saying you're not a fan of the full range, but uh, look across the whole range. I think all of them have a different sort of appeal. For me, the Slash 6, Slash 7 series, that's in the 70s. The paint jobs, the fonts, uh, the way the bike's put together, the nostalgia behind that, that's really the appeal to me. I can live with some of the design shortcomings and some of the idiosyncrasies uh, of the bike. Conversely, uh, 85 on, I kind of fade out on those bikes for a few reasons, uh, but mostly it's aesthetics. I don't have a whole, the brakes obviously are better and things like that. So uh, that's my take on it. Uh, yeah, it, and, and actually, uh, and thanks for sharing that, because I actually, when you say it that way, I kind of, I can 
I see the point of view that you're coming from, and I realize now how, how I wrote my point of view was from the servicing point of view, yes. not necessarily from the collecting, owning, loving point of view. Because uh, you're right. I mean, they didn't sell as many bikes from 85 on, probably for a reason, right? Uh, they're <laughs> yeah. a little bit uglier than other ones. Uh, I, yeah, so for, forgive me, everybody. I meant I'm, I'm coming from a place of serviceability, from uh, refinement, you know, which, which is natural. Uh, yeah. You know, I would, you know, we'll get to this in a minute probably, but the R75 slash 5 was such a massive leap forward from a slash 2. And then it can just continued to slope up and up and up and up until ninety five. It just kept getting better and better. So yeah. it's only natural that there's points in time where they were weren't as great as other times, right? Uh, but but I, I hear what you're saying, Darren. Like I don't mind the looks of the um, eighty five and that stuff, but I don't, a lot of people agree with you that they're not as good looking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but again, they are better handling bikes. I haven't. I've never owned a mid or a sort of eighty five on. I had a Mystic for a while uh, that I really enjoyed. Um, great suspension, great brakes. You know, the motor was really, uh, the, you know, had been all figured out uh, for the most part then. Uh, the only problem with the Mystic for me was it was just too small. Um, for whatever reason, that bike just seemed to not get along with somebody who was six feet or over. Um, okay. So another couple things on your buying guide uh, I want to mention is um, you, you mentioned the circlip issue. So uh, your your contention is what? My my contention. Okay, well, I just I service a lot of those things, a lot yes. of gearboxes, and I've seen a whole yep. lot of um, them without the circlip or the groove, right? Yep. And to be honest, the number of them that have been catastrophic have been zero. I mean, there was one, but I, but it wasn't the circlip's fault. It was the fact that the the owner had, you know, not heeded the signs of the fact that the gearbox was failing at all, and then and then that led to further destruction. But you know, again, that's just my experience. I've heard, I've listened to your other podcasts and others. I can't remember who who was saying what, but there were other people saying that have more experience maybe when they were dealer mechanics in the 70s, or not the 70s, um, dealer mechanics when this was contemporary, that said this, you know, this was a problem. So I respect that, but I'm just saying I've, I've never seen that, and I feel like the gearbox lets you know there's a problem long before there needs to be any kind of catastrophic failure. Um, I always put the groove in, and I, when they're not there, I always fix it. I'm just saying I see it, I see a lot of them. Where they've had, they've got a hundred thousand kilometers on them. I take it apart, and the the bearing hasn't even moved at all. So, yeah, fair it's enough. It's not as spooky as it's just not as spooky as the internet would like you to believe. Yeah, I, 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 and I'm going to go with you on that uh, in this way, George, to say that you know a lot of people will either if they're being critical of the that era bike uh, that particular era of transmission or whatever, you'll hear the phrase, the ticking time bomb. And I, I do think it's, uh, it's dramatized uh, to a certain extent. And it's one of those th things, either it's a problem, your gearbox is a problem, or it isn't. And it's not always going to be a problem, as you're saying, because of the circlip. Uh, but at the same time, if you're having your transmission serviced, you'd be a fool not to have one put in. Absolutely. It's an extra 75 bucks. Like, why yeah. wouldn't you do it? And, and no one's ever said no to that. Yeah. And I don't, actually don't even give anybody a choice. I just, now, anecdotally but, speaking, 
I bought a, and I'll ask you about this too. I have, this is later in your list here. I had a 92 uh, GSPD. I bought it in, or traded a guy in Chicago for it, just to even trade for a slash five, which I thought was a pretty good deal at the time. This is about 10 years ago. Anyway, he had had the uh, transmission serviced uh, at uh, some shop at Chicago Cycle Works or something. I don't know. Pretty de decent shop. I, I don't know him too well. Anyway, I called him up. I said, hey, did you guys do the circlip on this when you did the transmission? The guy didn't remember. And they said, uh, no, you know, we can't remember. And I was still kind of new to that bike, and I was kind of hemming and hawing and kind of fell into, I was into the camp of, oh, God, my transmission's going to blow up. What am I going to do? It's, you know, I just said to hell with it. I lived with it, and turns out it was fine. So there's that. Yeah. There's that. Uh, okay, so speaking of the GSPD, uh, I'm just going to quote you here. I thought this was funny, and I'm thinking, again, you know, you're, this is sort of maybe comedic value that doesn't necessarily get translated uh, onto the visual page. GSPD, uh, 91 to 95, uh, 10 pounds of shit in a five-pound bag. <laughs> yep, yeah. Yeah. Uh, again, you know, I must have had a, a, a bad couple of weeks of servicing those things, so I'll, I'll clarify <laughs> what I mean by that. I mean, they are they are very densely populated bikes compared to some of the others in terms of like the way the components re the components are laid out, especially the, the electrical. Yeah. Just, there's something about those bikes that are just a little bit harder to work on. They're a little more you have to break your wrist a little more often to get into certain places. Um, they're freaking heavy. My opinion, everybody's going to freak out. They're a little overrated for what they really are. They're amazing touring bikes, but but there's other options for that. I don't know why you need a Clydesdale. So there's a lot of lore around them. I, I you know, I had a bad day, but <laughs> yeah, uh, they're very dense. You know, they're not as dense as a K bike. No, but they're they're approach they're approaching that. No, that, that I've never heard that term used. Dense. It's so true. To getting into the fairing, trying to get into the uh, speedometer, tachometer. Uh, I mean, if you have a, just a regular man size hand, uh, it's two times yeah. too uh, too big to get in there. Um, they are heavy uh, and unwieldy. The reason I bought it, well, the reason I bought mine, I moved to the Ozarks here in Arkansas, and I'm still in the same location. Uh, I you know live in a real rural area, uh, an unpaved road that has three water crossings. I go across a creek. When the creek's high, I have five to ten miles of back roads uh, that are poorly uh, maintained just to get to pavement. So I thought, no, yeah, that's so a good reason. yeah, so I'm thinking, well, I need to get something that's a little more off-road oriented. Uh, and I just said the guy, and I saw the PD, you know, came up, and the guy said, hey, I'll trade you your slash five for it. So it didn't cost me any money. I didn't have any money, really. So it worked out well at the time. But honestly, George, I mean, in hindsight, that I should have kept the slash five because the, <laughs> the driving that PD around, uh, it was uh, it was like handling an elephant at times uh, off road. I eventually sold it, bought the first generation GS, which was uh, you know really eye opening. Uh, yeah. the, the GS compared to that, it's like a Honda XR six hundred. Uh, oh, they're just so they're so nimble and light yeah. in comparison. They're, yeah. Like you know, BMW really lost the plot, or the customers you know directed the market that way. But 
Yeah, I, you know, I have customers who have GSPDs and they can't even get them on the center stand. <laughs> they're, I know, they're heavy. And it's like, well, this maybe isn't the bike for you, but you know, it, the heart wants what it wants. Yeah, I, I, I like them. You know, I would, I would not, not own one again. I mean, I, I wouldn't be against it, but I think that particular year, '91, when they went to the giant tank and the fairing, that was really when the downfall started. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, well, I've got one. I got one for sale here, Darren. <laughs> and again, they're great touring bikes. If you're a big dude, you know, six over six feet, you're going to be doing uh, a lot of traveling. They're great for that, um, no doubt about it. Yeah, so, um, absolutely. No, you're 100 percent right, and that's that's actually one of the reasons people like them. And I yeah. and I totally agree with that. And and again, my point of view, those points of view on the website come from a point of view of servicing them. Yeah. If you're just a person that gets to ride them and enjoy them, then you're the lucky one. And I'm servicing <laughs> it, then you're going to have a different point of view. But I'm a big dude. I'm six six, about two thirty five. Oh wow! And and that's a that's a good bike for me. Yeah. Uh, in that regard, but I still don't I still don't have one. Period. <laughs> <for some laughs> All right. So there's uh, more stuff on there. Maybe maybe not controversial. I don't know. We'll leave that up to you. But again. I uh, invite you all to go to Air Support BMW and check out. Uh, so you want to buy an old BMW. Uh, you want to buy a classic BMW. There's some some fun stuff to read there. Okay, George, here we go. Yeah, and, and, go and, ahead. And don't forget, uh, you can always shoot me an email and ask me. I get this a lot. People people shoot me emails all the time asking me about a particular bike. They even send me pictures or the ad link or whatever and ask me, what do you think of this? Normally, I respond. Okay. And, and honestly, without sarcasm. <laughs> okay, good. That's good to know. Okay, so uh, our kind of uh, four questions we get everybody out with here. Uh, your four favorite Airheads, um, 247 uh, bikes. So I want to know the year, the color, and the model. All right. So I alluded to it earlier. The, um, the 75 slash 5, the early ones, 70 to 73, or 69 and 73 in black with the white stripe. I mean, I think that's the quintessential 247. Um, and why is because, I mean, like I said before, they're just such a leap forward. If anybody's ever had a slash two and then got on a slash five, it's like you, it's like you're traveling to a different planet. It is. Yeah. They really, they really did change everything about the motorcycle um, everywhere. It, it, and it's really, and, and I think even now riding a slash five, you wouldn't go, oh, man, this is such an old bike. You'd think, well, this is a fun bike, whereas if you ride a Slash 2 now, it's like, wow, this thing's this is fun, but it's it's an old bike. So I love those. Um, they also, I think, they nailed the aesthetic. I think they look great with the Touring Tank. Uh, I love the 77, 78 R100 RSs. Um, I love them in the, the Proper's blue metallic gold, or sorry, blue metallic, and I love them in the gold. Um I think they're one of the best airheads ever for just the point of view of how they elevated the engineering with that fairing. The the drive line is really well sorted out by then. Um, they're fast as hell when they're tuned right. The wind protection is great with that fairing. I mean, I just love them so much. I, I, I think I, I smile the most when I'm riding an RS. Um, I have to mention the the 85 and up monolevers like my R80. I mean, it was my first BMW. I have to give it props there. And it is what it is. People, a lot of other people agree that from the point of view of just a basic backcountry airhead, I mean, they're, they're really unbeatable. They're smooth. They're powerful enough. They handle really well. 
Um, I like mine in red, but they come in other nice colors like silver. Let me jump in there uh, on the on the R80, George. It's often said for whatever reason, uh, maybe that era bike even um, the R80. I, and you hear this a lot with the ST uh, as well, but the R80 motor seems to be the consensus sort of perfect size for the 247 where the thousand can be a little bit grumbly uh, and might be pushing the limits of the cylinder bore the 650 750 leaves a bit to be desired a lot of folks think the 800s the sweet spot what what's your thought there yeah it really does seem to be i don't know if it's a matter of um balance or other other dynamic forces or even the way they, they lay out the, the valves, the different valve sizes, but they do seem to be the smoothest. Um, they're, not as, they're not as powerful as a 1000, but they, they don't seem to, yeah, grumble is a good word. It's like the difference between a, a, K1, a K100 and a K75. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it's, it's night and day. I first became a regular customer with Boxer 2 Valve a few years ago when refreshing an R90S. William and Edward Plam's video repair series, well, that was a go-to reference. It made that job and repair session much easier and really an enjoyable process. Boxer 2 Valve carries only the highest quality parts, mainly manufactured by OEM suppliers, so the fit is perfect and the repair, well, it's done just one time. Fitment and applications for all parts are clearly listed. To quickly find what you need, you simply enter your year and model of your bike, and you'll see only the parts that fit. Shipping, that's always fast, with most orders going out that day at 2 p.m., and shipping is available to all parts of the globe. Boxer 2 Valve carries a wide variety of premium special tools and maintenance items, many of those unique to their catalog. William and Edward and the team at Boxer 2 Valve are airhead fans, and as they say, with a passion for simpler times and uncomplicated machines. Check them out for all your parts needs, Boxer2Valve.com. That's the number two, Boxer2Valve.com. William Plam is back with us once again for another Tech Talk. Our topic this week, special tools. Now, Before we dig into this, there are a number of tools we did not mention. I think you realize covering the entire list would be a bit exhausting. So the conversation here is a bit extemporaneous in that regard. As a hobbyist mechanic like many of you, I've purchased specialty tools from a number of suppliers, including Boxer 2 Valve and Cycle Works, among others. And as we often note, the aftermarket support for these bikes, including the availability of special tools, continues to drive their appeal and popularity. So off we go. Here's William Plam. All right, everybody, back on the line with William Plam at Boxer 2 Valve. And William, since we last spoke, the BMW MOA National Rally has occurred. And I understand you had a booth uh, or were hanging out there. Tell me about your rally experience this year. Yeah, thanks. It was a, it was a really the best rally that I can recall ever having been to, and I've been to quite a few. Um, it was it was everybody was really it, it seemed to be in a great mood, and it was, a, it was the weather was good, the venue was nice and new and clean, and it was just great. And it gave us a chance to um, connect with a lot of our customers 
We were there with our Wunderlich display, but a, a lot of Tuval folks um, talked to us and recognized me from the video series and what have you, and, and was was very flattering. To, and thank you for all those of you who were there and came up and said thanks for what we did and mentioned the, the podcast too. So that was really cool to, to connect with you with you all. And it was a really, really, really good time. We we had a blast. And we the other thing that's happened since uh, right around that time is we got a new, a new guy working for us. His name is Jan. He's a German guy, and he's a real airhead enthusiast. He um, just recently moved to the U.S. and we hooked up, and he's working as our uh, warehouse parts manager. And he rides a, a first thing he did. Uh, what he got here was he started snooping around and he bought uh, an R80, an R1986 mono lever, and he's been you know working on that and it's really cool. He's a big Airhead fan, big uh, um, addition to to our our company. And he was there working with me in the booth and saw all those folks come up and talk about the videos and so on, and so, you know, the, the, the boys are just on me because we, we need to make some more, um, and so... You do, <laughs> we're yes. We're going to be doing that, yeah. <laughs> so that, that, that was a big outcome of, of, of him seeing that and me being reminded that that's something we need to do, so it's on our, it's on our radar for the near future. Good, all right, and welcome, uh, Jan, to Boxer 2 Valve. That, that's good news, good news. All right, so, William, yeah. our topic this week and uh, Tech Talk is specialty tools and i want to start the conversation out here just maybe with some comments about tools in general and just an observation i had when i was riding in this morning uh thinking about this topic my dad had in the mid 80s started driving german cars so i think his he had an audi 5000 first which was kind of forgettable uh, but he moved on to a 733 and then later sort of stuck with Mercedes. And the first big Mercedes he got was a 560 SEC, I think, in 85 or 86. And I know your Mercedes background, um, your German car background. Anyway, even as a kid, one of the first things I remember about those cars was what was in the trunk. So there was a toolkit, a first aid kit, a uh, sort of hazard uh, day glow orange display so if you were pulled over and also getting back to this is the toolkits and that translated on to uh, once I started riding airheads really being impressed with the toolkits that came with the bikes and I'm not so familiar with slash 2 and earlier series but I know they had a pretty robust toolkit as well wonder if you can just talk about how German manufacturers uh, really saw the importance of providing good tools for their owners and what that says uh, about the the mark the mark and how they build that into their uh, routine yeah I, I was thinking about the same thing in fact that's what I wanted to comment too on, yeah. on the importance of the original toolkit and uh, yeah it's true with you you have to do especially back in the day when you could actually fix things <laughs> you know having that that mercedes-benz toolkit or the kit in in any of the german cars meant that you could take care of of um a lot of little things you'd be self-sufficient and you know tighten that the, the the door striker or something like that you know yourself without uh, any problem because there was a there was a phillips uh, screwdriver in the toolkit and 
always came in handy. And uh, and same with the mo- the motorcycles. Uh, that was always a mainstay of BMW, uh, even in the pre seventy models. Uh, the toolkit was uh, had all the things you know you needed to to take the wheel bearing, uh, like a pin wrench for that. And uh, it came with uh, a lot a lot of really special tools and the. Uh, in the seventies, uh, you know, they even gave you a little feeler gauge, you know, for the valve adjustment and point adjustment and all that sort of thing, so that you could take care of things on the road. Yeah, it's a and, and I good quality too. They were they're really good quality tools, and I, I don't know much about uh, BMW motorcycles past ninety nineteen ninety five. At least what might have been in a toolkit, but suffice to say that the last of the airhead run, the R100s and all that, and the GSs that came out, uh, once you get into the oil heads uh, and going on further, I don't know that there's even really much of a toolkit in those bikes uh, these days, is there? No, there's really not. I mean, the, the, it, in the modern bikes, of course, uh, it's very, very minimal. They give you a tool to remove the oil filler plug, I think one or two uh, Torx wrenches for the most common things, and uh, maybe a screwdriver, but that's about it. <laughs> yeah. The the eleven uh, hundreds and the eleven fifties they gave you a little bit more of a of a toolkit, um, and the and the and the K bikes too. They that was still like pretty decent, but definitely I don't know maybe after around two thousand that they they just kind of realized that the bikes were just so complicated that it didn't really make any sense anyway, you know. Yeah, but it's still like guys that have a modern bike. You know, it's still a good idea to, to have a toolkit. And you know, even though it's not supplied with the bike anymore, it's the importance of having something along so you can still do those minor things is really a big deal. I think. Yeah, and you know that really came to mind when I was on my recent trip uh, on the seventy-seven S. Was what am I going to bring along, tool-wise and spares? And the the old adage always seems to go: if you carry it, you don't you end up not needing it, and what you don't bring, you end up needing. But Thankfully, that neither was the case for me. But um, just I, I was I've still marveled at just the standard tool roll. You know, I'm looking at it and thinking, okay, you know, maybe I can supplement this. I'll bring a uh, a ratchet and some sockets and you know a couple other odds and ends. I had like a little Wolfman tool bag. Uh, you know, I, I just throw some stuff off the workbench in just so I've got it in case I need it. But the standard tool roll. Uh, with those airheads was really, really impressive. And it's always a satisfying thing, um, especially if you buy a used bike, if you're fortunate enough to have a a toolkit that comes with it. That seems to be a rarity more and more these days. Um, So what I'm moving on then here, what I want to talk about is uh, specialty tools for the home mechanic. And there are a a ton. And we should say Boxer 2 Valve, uh, you've got a great uh, section on your website f- for uh, specialty tools, whether it's BMW specific or just generic or general use uh, motorcycle tools, things you would need in the garage. Uh, as a as a dealer, or, uh, at one point and as a shop, uh, I'm imagining you had the ubiquitous what we see in the shops, the blue pegboard with the tool outlines. Do you still have one of those setups uh, where you are now? That that, that classic board. Yeah, we sure do. We have what we have one, and it's almost complete. There's a couple of things that we that, uh, where the silhouettes are just uh, sticking out there, but for the it's a probably ninety five percent complete. What What are you so missing? Pretty hard to find. 
um, I don't remember right off the top of my head, but it, there was a, a, a couple things that we really don't need that often. I think maybe even some of the parts for tools for the K bike, whatever. But oh, we have okay. Most of it, yeah, we do. We we have we have like that sort of thing. But I'll sit back to the, the the stock toolkit. You know, yeah. a lot of times I find that that the toolkit's there, but it's missing one or two things. You know, because somebody didn't put it back over some point in time. So. If you get a new bike, you know, it's a good idea. You can go on, like, uh, Microfiche or Partsbook and see what the original toolkit actually consisted of and make sure that you pretty much have it all covered because it sucks when you get there and it's like, oh, you needed a 14-millimeter <laughs> wrench and that, that one's missing, you know. Yeah. So having that complete is, 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 is more important than having it at all, I think. Yeah, I agree. And the one thing I've always found that's hard to find with the toolkit, especially in the mid early to mid 70s era this is the uh, feeler gauge that also has uh the uh, gauge for the uh f- under the tank master cylinder <clears throat> in fact yeah I, can, I yeah I can remember in one of your videos uh I think you had it but at some point at one point I think you actually sort of measured the thickness of that uh, feeler gauge so folks could know hey look you know if you don't have it in your kit here's what the spec on that is but that's something you, yeah. that's hard to. I, I've lucked out and found a complete kit with one of those a couple of years ago and jumped right on it. It's just good, you know, need to have a full kit like that. But um, yeah, so with the big pegboard and all the specialty tools you use in a shop, I, I'm curious do you still find yourself going to the board if you're working on a bike for a lot of those? Or have you sort of adapted to what you? maybe carry or other things tools you've made uh, how, as a as a professional shop do you still find yourself going back to those original bmw specialty tools a lot oh absolutely definitely um they they they're a lifesaver in, in in many cases i mean there's always usually always a way you, you can work around but we have the luxury of having the tools there so we use them but it's most of the tools are for more kind of complex operations for, for basic maintenance and all that, you know, that's, that, that it's mostly hand tools and that sort of thing. But for, for, uh, you know, the measuring devices and things like that, those are, those are uh, indispensable. Yeah. And I want to, uh, you bring up a good point there. I think for com- specialized component repair. So you're doing a final drive, right. repairing a final drive transmission, uh, you know, you've got the bottom end out on the engine, you know, those sort of things. Yes, uh, those uh, BMW special tools are, are indispensable, and you know uh, they're going to work right, and you're not going to have to question uh, proper fitment and all that kind of stuff. But going back to the home wrench, uh, you know, before we started this, uh, or before I left to come in to talk to you today, I just kind of went through, I've got a specialty tools box uh, and that I've built up over the years, and... So some of the things I keep in there, uh, and this isn't a full inventory, um, but, I mean, here's some things just basic riders are going to need to have. You've got to have an exhaust wrench. Uh, It's a good idea to have the 27-millimeter grounded down socket. Now, you can use the, uh, for the swing arm. Now, you can use the one in the toolkit, but it's a little hard to sort of get a good grip on on it that way. A rotor bolt. Uh, removal tool, flywheel holder. A um, couple other things that I found have worked really well for me, and we talked about this a little bit, was uh, a slide hammer. 
And that really comes in handy for a lot of things. I've noticed how that can be used in place of what I used to have a lot of specialty tools. So for instance, I know a lot of guys, I want to say it's, uh, I might be getting the name here wrong. Maybe it's Northwoods or there's another sort of uh, fella that supplies specialty tools. And I had bought some of those in the past uh, and they're good. I mean, don't get me wrong. Uh, but eventually I found that a slide hammer, had I just bought a slide hammer on the front end for $45, it would have saved me a little bit of money buying something to remove the breather uh, cover or the breather uh, on the uh, top of the engine, the engine breather, or, uh, yeah. so, or removing the races and stuff from the swing arm, or even to a certain degree, I haven't done this yet, but I have to imagine with that slide hammer, if you can find a big enough expanding end, you could just yank out the races on a steering head bearing and not have to fool with, uh, you know, that whole nut and bolt and tightening and clamping and all that kind of stuff. So, I mean, there's a lot of stuff. If you've done this over the years, somebody like me as a home mechanic, you find you find what works. Um, what As far as, and the neat thing in your videos is when you're going over, especially in the Slash 6 series, here's a tool we use here in the shop, but there's a lot of workarounds, uh, or uh, not a, I don't want to say a workaround, but a lot of options you can do so you're not having to necessarily spend spend the money. What When you're uh, advising folks or, or in the workshop or whatever, just off the top of your head, what are some of those, some of those tools that, uh, like for instance, I, I mentioned the, um, the slide hammer. There's some other things that really you can get in there and use and not necessarily have to spend the big bucks on a, on a BMW specialty tool. Yeah, I think, I think when it comes to tools, I kind of uh, uh, would split it into two categories. Okay. You know, the, one, the, the, tool, the tools that you have in your shop or your home, the garage, and the stuff that you carry with you, you know. And so for, for, the, for the home, you know, if you have a basic set of, um, of metric tools, you'll be good. You know, the, the, um, the ball end uh, type Allen keys are really good, sockets, so you can get into tight spots. And these are the kinds of things that, you know, you can uh, collect um, along the, as, as needed. You know, I think that if you, you get into a situation where you want to try to take on a repair, you can evaluate whether it's worth acquiring the tools or maybe you could borrow them. But the, basically, I think that a slide hammer is a, a really good one, but you, you, you have the, the um, ability and the luxury of time when you're in your home environment to get the tools as you need them to, to perform a repair. I think What's important is what you carry with you on on a, on the road, and so you know so that you can actually make repairs. Um, even if let's say you have you're on a on a trip and you you need a part, you can have the part shipped to you easily enough, even overnight if necessary. But you need the tools to change it. So I got a couple of things that I think are important to have. Um, wh one of them is. On especially on the six-speed gearboxes, you know, on the left-hand side, there's that one bolt where you can't really get an Allen wrench in to um, to to at all. You need to have a take an a, like an L-shaped Allen wrench, an M a six millimeter, and cut off like about half an inch or something off the short end, 
and then so that you can slip it in to get to that one bolt in case you need to take the gearbox out. If you don't have that with you, you need to figure out a way to cut an Allen wrench on the road. So it's a, that's a, a good one to, to be prepared for right, right away. Excellent call. Yes, good one. Yep. Yeah. And then um, the, the, a simple thing uh, of, to check your clutch uh, adjustment um, on most of the gearboxes, it's a 202-millimeter piece of uh, wire or welding rod. You may have a coat hanger or whatever, but you should have that along so that you can keep an eye on your clutch adjustment if you need to and, and keep that. You follow a manual on the, that procedure, but um, that, that's a good one to have along. And then a few other things that you mentioned, the exhaust nut wrench, that's really important. Tire repair kit, you got to have something along so you can fix a, a flat, whether it's a tube or tubeless, and then, of course, a way to pump it up. So the CO2 cartridges, make sure periodically that the, that the, the glue hasn't dried up in the patch kit and, you know, that everything works okay, and that um, if you use a, a, the uh, CO2 cartridge that you remember to replace them with new ones so that you're ready to go. Having a few zip ties along is imperative, mm-hmm. and then wire, wire both both a hard wire like a bailing wire or a safety wire, and also a, maybe several feet of insulated wire so you can fix a, a bad connection or a short or whatever. Mm-hmm. And along the other lines of electrical, uh, so some spare bulbs is always a good thing to carry with you. Fuses, you want to have a few of those, and then um, you mentioned the rotary mobile tube. That's that's um, really important, too, so you can get that out of there. Um, we have a really cool thing that's called a cable repair kit because cables do break. And uh, with the cable repair kit, it doesn't take up much space, but you can fix a clutch cable or a throttle cable if it happens to, to break or, or get frayed and not work so well anymore. Like, it will happen sometimes. And that's a really, really cool thing to carry along. Um, some tape is uh, always good, some electrical tape or whatever. You never know how that can come in handy for so many things. And it's always a good idea to carry your owner's manual if you still have it because there's a lot of information. That's another thing that they really did, too, in the old days was the owner's manual really showed you a lot of very important uh, maintenance procedures and, and so on. Um, even minor repairs are, are covered in the, in the owner's manual. We have those in reprint if your bike doesn't have one, but it's the nice thing to have along. Yeah, that's a and, great point. And, that's a great point. I mean, yeah. and that those really seem to have peaked. Uh, I, I'm not as familiar with the later models, uh, owner's manuals. I never seem to have them. But it's, it seemed like the Slash 6, Slash 5, Slash 7 series really were detailed uh, in, in what the owner's manual had as far as just basic uh, maintenance and repairs, setting the carburetors, all that kind of stuff. Exactly. All that stuff's in there. I mean, the, the number of pages hasn't changed. It's just that nowadays the manuals are, you know, nine-tenths of the manuals about the, how the electronics all work. Which <laughs> button, which <button>. That's right. <laughs> so, yeah, so that, that, that's, that's a, a good one. And then carrying a few um, spares and basic things, you know, that don't take up a lot of room, like spark plugs maybe, and um, if you go and farther a, a, a diode board brushes um you know that's a good thing the other cool cool tool that we have is something that, that's really neat um I, I think i might have mentioned it once before but it's we call it the gear shifter and if you're riding a five in a five speed there's that shift uh paul spring that 
sometimes will break and leave your bike in whatever gear it happens to be in, whether that's neutral, first, second, third, fourth, or fifth. And the, the gear shifter allows you to go into the uh, filler plug on the five-speed and at least select a gear that's usable so you can keep going. So that's a, that's, it fits right in the toolkit. It's a pretty cool thing to have along, too. Yeah, that's the one you really never want to use. Let's put it that way. No. No. You don't want to use And the most important thing about, about, about um, going on a trip and being prepared is pre-trip inspection. Great. You want to be Yes. That's and I, got, I, I have a very embarrassing story I can tell you. I'll make it quick. <laughs> please, please. But, um, it, it, we, I was with, we were, in, I was in, in Germany uh, a couple years ago, and I had my R100RS over there, and my, my son, he's got a, he had an R80GS. Um, and so we decided to go on a trip, so we went down to Pilsen uh, in the Czech Republic. And I didn't, I, I you know, don't, have the bike at my disposal all the time. I go back and forth, and I, I thought, oh, man, I, I just changed those brake pads. I think it was a year or two ago. they got to be fine. So we just roll into the to the town of Pilsen right through the city limits, and I hear this terrible scratching noise coming from my front wheel, and I'm like, what the heck's going on? And I look, and my, my front brake pads are smoked. They're they're. <laughs> They're they're down to the metal, you know. If I had a, if I had the caught in time, I would have ruined the rotors. Yeah, and and I was so I so I so I parked the bike. I jumped on my son's R80, and I went to every shop I could find in in Pilsen looking for these brake pads, and they didn't have them. You know, nobody had them. So our our house, where our little apartment we have over there, was about maybe two hundred miles away, something like that. Several several hours ride. So I ended up. I knew I had a set of brake pads in my little parts stash. I ended up riding from Pilsen back up to Germany to grab the brake pads and, and of course, the, the punch and hammer and everything, and then rode all the way back down so I could pop new brake pads in. I could have avoided all that and spent more time drinking beer and Pilsen with my son <laughs> if, if, if I had just, like, checked my pads before I left. That was stupid. Yeah. That Well, thanks for sharing that. Uh, we, we've all done stuff like that. You're 100% right. The pre-trip, pre-ride inspection, uh, you know, I remember going through that here just recently uh, before I, my summer trip this year, and I'm always, you know, taking short little day trips or a short little overnight trip if I can ahead of time just to see if anything pops up and... Nine times out of ten, it's fine, but inevitably, even the best preparation, uh, something happens. Uh, I was mentioning before we got started, uh, developed a, le- a leak on the final drive, which wasn't a really big deal. Um, but yeah, that, that you bring up a great point there. One thing before we move on uh, and maybe start to wrap this up, you mentioned the CO2 cartridge. I've been carrying those things around for years, had been, until I finally just bought a little air pump little compressor that hooks up to the battery charger. Have you ever used the CO2 cartridges? Many times. How many yeah. How many would it take? I always wondered, how many to fill up a tire? So the, the, typically they give you in the, in the little um, tip-top kit that mm-hmm. was standard on the tubeless tires, they, used, they gave you three. Yeah. And, and I, I found that that I would use all three of them for the most part. That's kind of what I figured. Because the third one, you're going to probably overinflate the tire, but that's what's going to get the bead to snap on again. Right, exactly. So they, yep. Yeah. And then so you might have then 50 PSI, and you might have to let a little bit of pressure out, but um, 
but that, 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 that's pretty much it. So you, you do need probably all three of those things. And you also got to keep in mind, too, that the, the, the properties of, of CO2 are different than of, of regular air. So um, you need to get that stuff out of there as soon as you can, to, you know, go when you get to a, a gas station or whatever and deflate the tire and then fill it up with, 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 uh, with reg- regular air from a pump. Oh, okay. I, I did not know that. Yeah. Interesting. All right. So uh, let's sort of wrap up this uh, tool discussion. I mean, we could talk a lot about tools and things like that, obviously. But oh, yeah. so I, I mentioned the final drive uh, little leak I had, and I don't know which seal it was on, uh, one of the two or three that's in there. But anyway, so I'm thinking I, I noticed this. I get home and I'm thinking, OK, uh, you know, this is a job I could do myself. And then I look online and see, okay, well, this is going to require another investment in specialty tools. So like a lot of us have done over the years, you have a a motorcycle, have your airhead, and a job comes up, and you end up buying some tools to do the job. And that's how a lot of us home mechanics, hobbyist mechanics sort of build up that uh, stash of tools. You know, you got to do a pull your transmission or real main seal or what have you, and you start building up those tools. In this case, I'm looking at what what I needed for the final drive and knowing my time's pretty limited right now. And I'm thinking, okay, gosh, it's probably about $300 in specialty tools for the final drive. You've got the holder, uh, a couple different holders, one to actually just hold the drive in the the, uh, vise on the bench, and then uh, the pinion gear holder and a big socket, you're going to need a big breaker bar uh, or maybe something uh, to get that uh, big nut off if you don't have a impact wrench or something. Anyway, long story short, I just looked at that and said, okay, this is a case where right now for me it doesn't make a lot of sense to buy all the tools. I'm just going to uh, send it off to a trusted shop and have that repair job done. But talk to me about uh, specifically uh, on the final drive, uh, that is that a particularly specialty tool heavy job? Um, yeah, it, it, it is if you if you're taking the, the pinion if you're changing the pinion seal out. Yeah. Now you mentioned with, before we got on the phone that you had that was you saw oil coming through that weep hole. Yeah. And that so that's probably the output shaft seal. That's the and. Um, and and by the way, it's really another thing to do with, with your uh, if you're riding an older like a up through um, 1980 uh, boxer to keep that weep pole clear. You know, you put a piece of wire through there, make sure it's clear because if it's plugged, it's going to just fill up with oil and contaminate your brakes. And and then and and the, the weep pole's there to kind of let you know that hey, there's something going on here. But if you do get oil coming out of that little weep pole, it's down by the drain plug. That's ind- indicative of the uh, output shaft seal, and that one is not that intensive, really, um, because you can just uh, take the final drive off. You can just lay it on the bench. You don't really need a holder. You take all the nuts off, yep. the bolt, depending on what model, and then there's a couple of little um, five mil or four millimeter um, threaded holes you put in, you, and you and you screw a couple screws in. You have probably laying around, and then it'll pull the case off. And then you can pop that seal in and out of there without any special tools. It's when you get into the pinion mm-hmm. seal, that's where you need the, 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 the special tools. Okay. So there, there's two levels of repair on the final drive, I think. Got it. Okay. That makes sense. I, I think I, I knew that, but uh, I didn't recall. And 
But let, let me just button up the that part of the conversation this way and saying with that particular job, I think you're probably like me and like a lot of other uh, airhead riders. If you're going in, I'm not going to just replace the one seal. Uh, I'm no, going right. to I'm going to do both. And I th remember you doing that in the video on the on the R90 slash six. And then you do need you do need the, the those tools. Um, there's not too many ways around that. No, the, 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 pin, the pin wrench you need, you know. So, yeah, so it's a, it's a call you got to make if you want to have it done or in, if you have a few bikes, then chances are you're going to have to do it again someday. Mm -hmm. So then it may make sense to have the tools. You know, I guess you just it's just a call that every individual has to make. Game time decision, as they say. Yep. Game time decision. All right, William. Well, excellent. Uh, as always, appreciate your time, and we'll look forward to visiting with you uh, down the road here a bit. Sounds good. Great talking to you. Bye-bye. As always, a great conversation with William Plam. We'll look forward to visiting with him again in a few weeks. Now, let's finish up this week's episode with George Thomas from Air Support BMW. Um, now, I, I, I tend to be, a, we haven't really gotten into my, my capabilities here and, and my passions in terms of how, what, what I service and how, but when it comes to an R100, um, I, tend to, I tend to go really crazy deep on the tuning to try and get every last vibration out via all the different methods that are available to me, carburation and yada, yada, but uh, to try and get that, to get, try and get them as smooth as possible. But out of the box, an R80 is just a lot easier to tune. The 75s are, are really good, too. Yeah. All right. Um, so I, inter place, I, yeah, I interrupted you there. So uh, R75, uh, 77, 78 RS, uh, 85 uh, on sort of R80. And what would the last one be? Would be the, uh, the 90s R100R in black. Yes. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned it. You had the Mystic, which is a similar, mm -hmm. not the same bike. Um but but for so many reasons uh, that it's just a great looking bike. It does feel small for big guys like us, but yeah. but not not like super cramped. But yeah, the great looking bikes. They handle just unbelievable, and that's a thousand cc motor. That with you know maybe it's because I'm riding the Canadian models with different carburetion, but they are smooth, and I can tune them to be like almost turbine like. Yeah, um, I, I you know I, I've had many customers. You know they didn't make very many of those either. And I've had four or five of them in my shop, and um, you know more than one of those customers has said they've never after the bike left here they didn't know the bike could be that smooth and powerful. Um, and and I, I, that's why I love them so much is they're just they're nimble, they're peppy, uh, they look great. I just wish that they didn't have a pair lever maybe, although it makes <laughs> them handle better. That the pair levers kind of. You know, we all know about those. Yes. Um, but but, but, I'll, but I'll overlook that. Okay, fair enough. Uh, one design or mechanical element on the 247, if you could go back in time, pause uh, the design uh, and, and change something, what would it be? Yeah, so for all my Internet complaining notwithstanding on my website, um, I think one of, your, one of your listeners actually called this one in, um, the negative cable attachment is from a servicing point of view again is is just a bit kind of fiddly and, and ridiculous i wish it was some sort of quick disconnect or something easier to get to but to have to undo that stupid little 10 millimeter bolt as often as a guy does when he's servicing a bike 
back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Yeah. Pretty monotonous and pretty, and, and really risky. There's, like, you could really screw that up. Um, so that, that's the one thing. I, you know, all the other things people complain about with BMWs, uh, I, I would change that. Uh, something as simple as the way they grounded the, uh, the battery. Now, uh, I, I've done this on uh, mine, is I just snip the uh, terminal and it make it a horseshoe instead of a circle. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's a good mod for yeah, sure. Yeah. I just I just can't do that on everybody's bike because they don't. You know, <laughs> they wouldn't. Bike. Yeah, they wouldn't appreciate it. I understand. <laughs> I understand. Uh, okay, so for you, George, uh, your best or worst breakdown uh, and fix and repair story, either from you or a customer. So I always want to caveat this was saying, so it could have been a breakdown where it looked like you had to fold in the tent, call the trailer, but somehow things got put back together, or the opposite end where you just, everything completely shit the bed, and, you know, that was all she wrote. Yeah, I mean, everybody's got a few of those stories, but yeah. I think I'll use the one from, uh, I think it was two seasons ago on, so that I mentioned the R100. 100 RT that I have it was new to me. I'd done a ton of work over the winter to get it ready for the riding season. And then normally I would do a lot of, um, you know, break in riding, so to speak, to, to kind of make sure it all works. Hey, not this time. Let's just take it right out, out on a tour. So we did that. We were two up and we got to, um, well, you wouldn't know where this is, but it's up in the Algonquin Highlands, um, kind of between between uh, near Ottawa, about an hour from Ottawa. So that's pretty far up. And exactly as you said, we're in the middle of absolutely nowhere, and all of a sudden the bike just quits. So I pull over, and we're beside this nice little lake, and luckily Carla always packs us a picnic. So we had a nice little picnic by the lake while I was contemplating what this could be. Well, it turned out the positive battery terminal on the battery itself had sheared right off, like clear sheared off flat to the battery casing itself hmm. turned out it was my own fault i used too long of a bolt and it was just touching the bottom and the vibration over time had just caused a fracture that just let go so stupid george and it was my fault but <laughs> it's absolutely unrepairable unrepairable yeah at a lake and I, it's broken right off so we had more snacks and more picnic and thought about it. And then I'm looking at this juice box that I'm drinking out of, and I'm like, huh, maybe I could use this somehow. So I folded the juice box up into as many like origami small as I could and wedged it underneath the toolbox. And then when I, when I sat on the seat, they put pressure on the terminal and wedged it down into the battery, and I was able to get the bike started. <laughs> That's very clever. And we, and we rode that way until we got to Ottawa and then and bought a new battery at the BMW dealer. So that was probably uh, three or 400 kilometers. Or very clever. Very clever. So, yeah, just ascent, ostensibly fill the gap, put, put your big old booty on there and, and push it down and off you went. Yeah, and don't shut the bike off. So <laughs> yeah. stop stuff was interesting. You know, you have to <laughs> yeah, that's right. team that. But. Yeah, that's a good one. I like that. Okay, uh, final one, George. Uh, what's the oil you use there at uh, Air Support BMW? Well, I'm so glad you asked. I'm a certified Spectra dealer, and uh, so I carry Spectra, of course. And I'm proud to say I'm, I'm the only Canadian distributor for the MotorGuard uh, Echelon, which is the high zinc, high phosphorus. 
Uh, it's widely available in the States, but for whatever reason, they stopped importing it to Canada a couple of years ago. So uh, I, was already a, I was already a dealer for, the, for their other product, and I just got on the phone and begged and pleaded with their salespeople to please send me, let me buy some. So we eventually came to an agreement if I bought a certain volume. So, yeah, right now it's, uh, it's Spectral. The reason is because uh, I remember when I got my bike and they were still, uh, I think BMW was still selling Spectro in the That's right. That's right. As the recommended oil. So I thought, what better oil to, to rep airheads um, than what BMW thought they should have in the first place? Yeah, and you mentioned something there. I didn't realize that. So the, the, they have uh, another uh, brand or another product. Uh, what did you say it was called that had the high zinc in it? Motor Guard. Motor Guard. Okay, I'm not familiar with yeah. that. So Golden Spectro yeah, so, Motor yeah, Guard. They, they have they have like of course they have like all the uh, different weights um, like every other oil brand, but they also have this Motor Guard, which is 1800 ppm of zinc, uh, which which we need for our flat tappets, right? Yep. Um, so yeah. All right, and I've never really had the opportunity to ask anybody this, but. Uh, since you are in a cooler climate, do you use different weight oils for the seasons, or are you just twenty fifty call it good? Yeah, that's what I do personally in uh, the research, and in fact, talking to Spectro, they're, they've got a really great uh, technical support group, and talking to them, they're like, yeah, you get a better quality oil overall with the blends now than you did, say, 20 years ago or 50 years ago, whatever. Um, but I do have customers who will switch out to straight weights. I know that's a personal preference. Sure. Sure. I just stick with uh, the out-of-the-can 2050. I think the most common... Oh, by the way, sorry, and, and yeah. non-synthetic, by the way, everybody, non-synthetic. There you go, yeah. I think the common uh, theme here is just make sure you change it and and have some in the engine, uh, which is probably the most important part. Well, look, George, i got to say, uh, great visit with you. We covered a lot of topics. I was anxious to discuss a lot of these things with you. Uh, you had uh, a few folks who, uh, who are regular listeners to the program uh, who had wrote and suggested I contact you, uh, probably, cu obviously, customers or friends of yours. Uh, so just really impressed with everything you've done uh, with your shop, how you've built up your business. Again, Air Support BMW. Find them online. Also, uh, Instagram. Uh, George, as we tell everybody, uh, thanks for all you do and keep up the good work. And thank you, and thanks for the people who recommended that we speak. Darren, I'd like to follow up sometime. We can talk more about some of the in-house services I do, maybe more in-depth that people might be interested in. 100%. how we do underheads and how we do stuff like that, because I get that question a lot. So 100%. You're always I, welcome to call me back. Good. I'm, I'm going to hold you to that. Uh, I'll just say here, uh, parenthetically, as we're make, making this a little bit longer of a wrap-up, uh, as we've just sort of gotten into the first year of this program, I've, a lot of folks have said, hey, you know, there's some other stuff I want to talk about. So I'll look forward okay. to, to doing a part two, uh, a, a redo uh, with you, uh, and go over some other stuff. So, uh, George, once again, thanks for the time. We'll be in touch. Okay. Thanks, Darren. All right. That is a wrap. Great chat with George Thomas at Air Support BMW this week. By the way, I chatted with him just a little bit after the first episode aired, and we're looking forward to visiting with George again. He's coming up with some topics and things to discuss. So, George, if you're tuned in, we're looking forward to catching up with you again soon. 
Again, drop us a line anytime, airheads247 at hotmail.com. Thanks for spending some time with us today. Until next time, so long, everyone. The Airheads 247 podcast is distributed and produced by From Off Productions. Our producer engineer is Jeff Glover. I'm Darren Dorton. Look forward to catching up with you next time.